Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Well, hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and we've got tumbling stock markets across the globe, banking crises in Europe and America, CDO defaults, record injections of liquidity. What's going on? With me to discuss the what, why, how and where next are two of the brightest minds in the markets and two great chartists. Dave Skarika of AddictedToProfits.net, who's watching events unfold from the sun sea and sand of the Bahamas with no doubt plenty of pina colada. Hello Dave. You need it recently. (laughs) And also with me is Michael Hampton. He's not in the Bahamas, he's in Shepherd's Bush. Hiya Mike. Hi Dominic. Well let's start with you Dave. Kramer's nervous, I'm nervous though I'm expressing it in a more reserved English kind of way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts? A repeat of Feb 07 and May 06 or or something more serious? Um, I guess one uh, positive, if you want to look at a positive at the market is that a lot of the technical indicators I watch such as the VIX which is a measure of volatility in options, most namely put options, it basically when the VIX gets higher, it means that investors are more fearful and they're paying up for put options, premiums for put options. And when it's lower, uh, they're, they're quite complacent. And during the, the bull market from 2002 to 2007, in the 06, early 07 uh, time frame, the VIX got extremely low, showing high complacency. That's been spiking up. Investors' intelligence, which is a gauge of kind of professional investors slash newsletter writers, um, that that's shot, shot, shown a big uptick in, uh, in bearishness, and the put-to-call ratio, which takes again on the CBOE the number of puts divided by the number of calls. Last week, the 10-day moving average tied the record that it hit at the March low for uh, the highest uh, level of put buying to, uh, in comparison with call buying of the last 20 years. So well, basically in a nutshell what I'm saying is a lot of my sentiment and technical indicators is, are showing that despite that we've only really seen a thousand point drop in the Dow, which is only 7%, um, and, and roughly an 8 or 9% drop in the S&P 500, that really you know, you're seeing ex- at some extreme levels in these technical indicators despite a relatively small drop in the markets. So, too much bearish sentiment, in other words. My opinion is, and I, you know, I hope in a month or two I don't have egg on my face, is that I think this is just a correction, and we might have another 5% left, but I can't see with the amount of bearish sentiment that's being shown right now, this thing really falling out of bed. Like, for example, you look at the VIX, and especially look at the area of the late 90s. Every time the VIX got over 30, 97, 98, and only you should stood there for a few days and you had a pretty good uh, intermediate to longer term market bottom well, when this would happen. Even during the bear market from 2000 to 2002, and again, every time that VIX reached 30, and sometimes it would trade higher, sometimes it would go into the 40s or maybe even 50, but every time it, it, it would go over 30 for usually a couple days, uh, the market would at least see an intermediate bottom and a good multi-month rally. And the reason I use the 30 levels because on Friday we hit about 25, 29.5 on the intraday high in the VIX. 
Well, I have to say, to me, the chart looks very similar to um, the end of the correction in May 06 and uh, again the correction in Feb 07. But nevertheless, I can't see who'd be buying now. Um, Michael, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I want to talk about two things, really. One is cycles and the other is spin. Let me start with cycles. Um, I, I think some listeners may remember the uh, discussion we had with Tim Newding. Please go back and listen if you haven't heard it. Well, we talked about how we saw a lot of similarities with 1987. And uh, one of the most important uh, similarities is, for me anyway, is that in 1987, that was the fifth year of a four- to five-year cycle. And, you know, the market continued to go uh, go on through four years into a fifth year of a upturn. And then there was a very sharp and deep sell-off. And I think we're seeing the same thing now. Uh, so that cycle started in 1982 and ran into 1987. This cycle uh, upturn started in 2002 uh, in October. Um, and um, 2003 uh, was another low. Um, but the important low was 2002. And now it's been running. We're in the fifth year now. And I think we'll see, and we are seeing uh, part of uh, a deep sell-off uh, which could last into October or November of this year. Um, so that, that's the cyclical situation. Um, and, you know, I think people, and I'll put a, some charts up on the website, Global Edge, where people can actually compare those two charts and see how similar they look uh, to their own eyes. But uh, it looks to me like uh, the timing is pretty similar. In fact, it might have even been, uh, we, we should be, this thing could be, uh, finished a little bit earlier, so um, we might be right in the middle of it. I'm rather hoping we get a bounce. Um, like Dave mentioned, um, the market figures do suggest that a bounce may be coming fairly soon. I'm hoping we get a bounce maybe this this week into uh, options expiry, and that would be, for me, uh, a shorting opportunity. Now, wh why do I say this? I want to talk about spin, and, and I'll use that as a polite word for lies. Um, I, I really think you know, the market for many years now has been, you know, living on a diet of lies, um, of, of spin. The, the most important one is probably the CPI, which is, you know, really not true. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, if we have a 2% CPI, but real inflation is 5 or 6%, that, that's a big distortion. And, you know, it means if the U.S. economy is, you know, revenues are growing, income is growing at... Um, you know, GNP is growing at 6%, and the inflation, the real inflation is 6%, then we've got no growth. And, and you know, now actually, the, you know, the rate of increase might be 5%, and inflation might be 6 and we might be already into negative growth. So people talk about the economy being in good shape. Um, you know, I really think that's not true. I think that's a distortion. And I think what we've seen this past week is that the appetite for, for spin has really been diminished, and people now see that a lot of the the, the spin that's been profitable to to believe isn't going to be profitable anymore. The, you know, the, the loans aren't going to be repaid. Um, the, the the mortgage crisis is not going to be con, con, contained as merely a subprime crisis. It's spreading. Um, you know, CPI isn't meaningful. Uh, core, core inflation isn't meaningful. The real real inflation is closer to 5 or 6% or more. I think the market now is waking up to, to, to truth. And there's going to be a great hunger, I think, for for people and, 
and uh, for truth. Uh, we're not going to be listening to rating agencies which are giving uh, AAAs to, to, to loans that really uh, aren't AAA anymore. I think this is a big change, and it's going to mean a deeper and more long-lasting correction than we've seen already. But just because, sorry, Dave, just, just very quickly, um, just because the economy isn't doing well, I mean, the, the markets don't always run in tandem with the economy, do they? Well, they say, oh. like, the stock market has predicted eight of the last four recessions. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, of course, what usually happens is the market usually bottoms and starts coming upwards about six to 12 months before the economy, if it is in a recession, finishes that recession. That's what happened in the 90 recession. That's what happened in 19, uh, you know, the early 80s. But, but just to, to, I, if I, before we, uh, just to, uh, while well, it's still on my mind here, because uh, what he mentioned about the cycles, it was really interesting. One of the most accurate predictors of the market cycles is the four-year presidential cycle which basically states that in the second year of the presidency, you would see a bottom in the market. If actually you go back to 1962, you'll see that every year, other than the year that he's talking about, 1987, which was the third year, uh, the second year of the presidency, and I'll just name them off very quickly here, 62, 66, 70, 74, 78, 82, 87, one year late, 90, 94, 98, 2002, almost all of those years were an intermediate or major bottom in the stock market. Now, the question we have to ask here is, is this like 1987, where our correction is coming one year late? The fourth year of the presidency, which is next year, is almost always an up year in the market. Um, or was that we saw about a 10, 8, 9, 10% correction in the markets in June of 2006. Was that the second year bottom? I guess that those are the two questions we kind of have to um, ask here. Well, I mean, I think it's clear that, you know, we, we're going to see a lower low this year. I mean, amongst other things, the housing situation is, is very bad. Um, it started to, to break in mid-2005. Uh, prices, U.S. house prices turned down in middle of 2006. They've now declined for 12 straight months. It's a decline, I think, of 8 to 10 percent. It's the deepest decline since the, the 30s. And, you know, I don't think that the U.S. economy is going to escape with a, you know, 8 or 10 percent correction in the stock market when we're seeing the deepest correction in house prices since the Great Depression. Dave, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, uh, one thing I'm working on in my, in my August issue right now is that, like, there's two, I think there's two segments of the stock market now. And that if, it's really interesting. If you look at the major indices being the S&P 500, the Dow, etc., those are more reflections of uh, the global economy because multinationals in the United States have such a, a global influence and, and such a large hand in the global economy. So what I'm saying is if you actually look at the quote-unquote global economy stocks like Coca-Cola or McDonald's, they've actually been holding up okay. Part of the reason is the lower U.S. dollar has been helping them as well. But if you look at anything domestically based and especially domestically interest rate based, banks as of late, the home builder stocks, uh, all of that sort of thing, they are holding, they are doing very poorly. So I think that's a sign that domestically and anything interest rate related is doing poorly, but the global economy as a whole, especially in emerging markets, is actually holding up okay during this time, time frame. 
Well, you know, can I just say I, gr- I agree with that? I mean, I think we've got two two types of booms going on in the world now simultaneously. Um, and I'll, I'll use some words that Bill Bonner used uh, last week on an interview I listened to. And um, one type of boom is a crack-up boom, and that's a boom which will end in a crack-up, and that's mainly financially oriented. And that's the sort of boom that we're seeing in the U.S., and it's now ending, and we're also seeing in the U.K., now the UK is about, uh, as you know, as I've documented, I think on my website, the UK is about 17 months, uh, has been about 17 months behind the US. So it's coming here too. But in 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 most of the West, we've got these, you know, overvalued property markets, way too much debt, massive financial speculation, and in the US in particular, a, a re- reliance on debt provided by other parts of the world. The crack-up boom is going to be really serious when it ends, and I think it might lead to a recession, which some people will uh, ultimately call a depression. Uh, maybe everyone will. Um, well, well, the boom that's going on in the Far East in China um, is is a you know is a is a real boom, and you know it will result in a correction and follow then by higher highs. But you know, a lot of what we're going to see in the world over the next year or two is going to be how how the world rebalances. As these two um, corrections and busts play each other play each other out play out over the next few years, and so I really think the U.S. is in for some very hard times. One of the uh, banking ministers in Germany came out and said Germany's facing its biggest banking crisis since 1931, and uh, the ECB has gone on to inject lots of liquidity, an unprecedented amount of liquidity, into the market. What exactly does that mean? And what are the effects of that going to be? Um, basically, what they're trying to do is what I'm trying to make this as simple as possible is what everyone's scared of is like a, a massive credit crunch via the you know 1930 you know, to you know mid 30s period. Essentially, what they're saying is that they don't want people to be afraid to lend. Okay, forget this nonsense of subprime and these loans that never should have been made. It's let's say. You're a middle-class individual making sixty, seventy thousand a year. Your wife makes sixty, seventy thousand a year. Uh, you, you have a small savings saved up, and you want to go and buy a four hundred thousand dollar home, and say get, you know, uh, a three hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgage and put fifty grand down, and you get rejected because there's no liquidity in the system and banks aren't lending to anyone. And I think that's what part of the, the and of course there's corporations lending and and individuals willing to take risks in the markets. Uh, that's what a lot of the private equity takeovers were about. And I think that's what they're scared of, is that any um, uh, ability or people's uh, want to take risk will dry up. So they're adding liquidity into the system to, to start that. And then you have a lot of dissipation of capital because people make whatever stupid investments in certain derivatives products, and, and or, or you know, you've seen these subprime loans, that, that cash essentially has evaporated or disappeared, so they're trying to re- replace that into the system. Now, what used to happen in the days before central banks is if you look at what happened in the 19th century, there really was no Great Depression. You would have these big blow-ups every roughly seven to ten years. You'd have an extremely bad depression for about a year. That would cleanse the system. Companies would go bankrupt. Banks would go under, and then you would rebuild yourself. Uh, and then have another big boom for, you know, 8, 10, 20, 50 years. And that's actually how the market really should work. And uh, unfortunately, I think what we're doing here, and, I, and I've said this for a while, since about the early 90s, 
by doing all of these bailouts and giving governments printing money and adding liquidity, you just you know delay the inevitable and you make you know the, uh, the a coming bust. And you don't know when that's going to happen. It can happen now. It can happen five or ten years from now. Uh, extremely bad. Um, do you? I mean, I I kind of gather both of you gentlemen see a, a bounce coming this week. Um, but Dave, uh, after we've had said bounce, do you see further upside in the stock market, or are you? Uh, do you have a more bearish outlook? This is where I want to look at really my indicators. Right now, I'd say I'm more neutral than anything else, and, I, and I'm, I'm usually never the one to sit on the fence. And the reason is I want to see how the bounce is met. If it's met through, you know, my VIX showing still high levels of fear, if it uh, put to call ratio showing still high levels. Um, uh, you know, say the sentiment indicator is not really showing a lot of bulls entering the market, then I'm going to say, you know what, this is just another correction, like March, like June of last year, and we're probably headed to higher highs. But if I see all of those indicators kind of dry up and show that a lot of bullishness has re-entered the market just on whatever, a five or six hundred point uh, bounce in the Dow, then I'm going to want to look at other things. Uh, then I'm going to say we're in a bear market. But then I want to look at other things. Let's say on this next move, the Dow can, say, rally to maybe even a new high. But stuff like uh, the transports fail to meet a new high, and the S&P fails to make a new high. Those are not, And then, say, in a couple weeks' time, we end up uh, coming lower again. That, to me, would say we're in non-confirmations, that the market's become very thin. It's only really the Dow 30 holding up. And, uh, again, if you look at that's what happened in the last half of 2000, that, or, sorry, 1999 to early 2000, that... The, the Dow spiked up, or so the Dow broke up to new highs. Uh, the NASDAQ went crazy because of the dot-com uh, dot boom. And, but the transports actually fell all the way through the late uh, 1999 period, and that was a huge non-confirmation. And, of course, that started the 2000 to 2002 uh, bear market. So right now I say I'm on the fence. I want to see how a lot of things react in the upcoming rally. Mike, um, what, what short-term targets have you got? I know you're a great options trader. Well, you know, these things are, are, are pretty, uh, they're not, they're written in sand rather than stone. So um, I think last time we talked, I, I expected a bounce to 1,500 uh, on the S&P, and we saw that, and I, and I bought puts there. Uh, I bought them a couple of points too early, but 1,503, I think, was the top. And uh, then the market sold off pretty heavily, as everyone knows, and I actually exited my puts uh, a bit too early, but I made a very nice profit on that. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, this week um, if if we could get rally back to maybe S&P uh, level of around 1,500. Um, I think it's going to have problems getting much higher than that. But I would like to say, you know, I, I, I think there, there's no guarantee we're going to get this bounce. Um, you know, I think this U.S. crack-up is going to bring a lot of bad news. If more bad news comes out, you know, tomorrow morning uh, um, or has come out over the weekend and I haven't seen it yet, um, you know, we could see more downside right here. And, uh, you know, it's quite possible we could see a, a gap down on Monday. And, and then we'll see how the market can deal with that. And, you know, I think the reason I'm not... You know, the reason I tend to be a little bit bullish here short term is, you know, I agree with all Dave's points about the uh, oversold nature of the market and the strong, you know, uh, extreme indicators. But also because it's August. And I, have a, I think people have a tendency, human tendency, to not want to see bad news during August. And, 
you know, so I think a lot of bad news that's out there that we will ultimately hear and see in September or whatever, it's probably not going to come out just yet. And that, that plus the oversold condition of the market might give us a decent bounce this week. Well, we were talking about just before the show is that the, the only time I could ever remember a, a pretty large sell-off happening in August was December, or sorry, sorry, August two, ni- 1998, uh, when the long-term capital uh, thing kind of blew up. And then we had a thousand September to retest those August lows in October. And if you look at that, the market peaked in mid-July, bottomed, or, you know, at the first bottom in late August, with the majority of that decline coming over the second half of August. So that's about the only serious correction. Now, a lot of tops can happen in late August, early September, but as he said, usually that's actually August, September is usually the time when tops usually occur, not uh, when uh, the bottoms usually occur. I see. Now, that would tie in with uh, Bob Hoy, who was a previous guest on the show. He believes uh, if the, the, the major, major corrections happen in the September to October time frame. Yeah, he, he's really correct about that. Like, they, they usually do not occur in, in the summer time frame. Like, actually, October, even though it's seen as being a bearish month because of the 29 and 87 crashes, um, Yale Hirsch correctly calls it, he writes the Stock Traders Almanac, the bear killer month. Because if you look at... Um, uh, it, it, uh, October, like the the bear market in 1990, the correction in 94, the 1998 correction, uh, the 2002 bear market, those all ended in August. So August, or so, so, sorry, in October. October usually be, be when things are usually start is when things kind of blow up and when things end. This Wednesday deadline with the hedge funds, I understand a lot of this liquidity has been injected in order to uh, shore things up for next Wednesday, or this Wednesday, I should say. What's, uh, can you explain that? Well, that's, that may or may not be the case, but um, that's, that was one, uh, one party uh, that I read believes that uh, that's one of the reasons we saw so much liquidity coming in last week. Now, what that's about is, um, hedge funds, you know, if you want to redeem your hedge fund, and, you know, hedge funds basically get bought, and then uh, you have to redeem them by giving notice to the hedge fund that you want your money back. And, and they, they require a certain uh, advance notice. And so if, if uh, sometimes it's as little as two weeks, but sometimes it's more like six weeks. So those who are redeeming at the end of August will have to give notice by the middle of the month which will be the 15th of August, and I think that's Wednesday, if I've got my numbers right. So they have to give notice by Wednesday um, to redeem uh, end of August or end of September. And, you know, if the hedge funds get those notices, it's quite normal for them to start selling uh, when they get them because um, if they wait until the last day, then, you know, it could be pretty ugly. So uh, if they get a lot of notices over these next few days, we may see a fair amount of selling coming in. You no, know, it's funny. I'm actually, I'm actually starting a hedge fund. <laughs> Great timing, right? <laughs> well, a lot of the best, Dave. A lot of the best hedge funds were started in you know extreme conditions like this. So maybe that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so if everyone suddenly decides they want out of their hedge funds, there's going to be a massive rush to the exit, and that's what uh, the uh, authorities are frightened of. Yeah, yeah I, I think. Yeah. I think it would be a question more. Of, sorry to, uh, to interrupt you. Just uh, and if I can, this will take two seconds. Um, is what the hedge funds are investing in. Like for example, my hedge fund is going to be mostly investing in, you know, venture, junior, 
resource companies and small amount of trading in the market. And so I'm not going to be doing like, you know, covered spreads and derivatives and nonsense like that, and, you know, and, and, and buying uh, 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 junk debt and, and that sort of thing. So, so I think it really matters, you know, if they're all leveraged to one side and they all get sell, you know, signals, that's, that's a bad thing. Well, I think it's a great time to be buying gold and probably a great time to be buying, you know, gold uh, shares as well. And I, I, that's something we need to talk about. Well, that's, was, that, that was my very next question. And uh, your hedge fund, uh, Davis, is, is going to be in the resource sector. And I know, Mike, it's uh, something that you're potentially thinking of further down the road. Um, so, and, and I know you're very bullish on gold. So I- explain why. Well, I'll, 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 I'll just say... Um, People should look at the charts, and um, not only the chart of gold in U.S. dollars, but the chart of gold in euros looks very interesting at the moment. And, I, I mean, I think anyone who looks at charts will know about triangles. And we're certainly at a point here where um, the gold in euros looks like it's set to break out uh, out of a triangle, and that should mean a pretty big move, which could last for some months, maybe six months or longer even. Um, that, that will be the case, I think, if we see gold printing 500 euros. And, you know, we could easily see that this week, and that could touch off a much bigger move. And it could also touch off a move in, you know, gold to over $700 per ounce, um, and maybe pretty quickly. But if everyone's, uh, if there's this credit crunch going on, surely everyone's going to be selling their gold stocks. My that would be my only fear, fear that the gold stock crashed with the market in '87. Now, if we have a more long, say, drawn out bear market, uh, for most of 2000 to 2002, gold shares went up, and for the '73-'74 bear market, the gold shares went up. So, if you're going to get an overnight crash, which I don't think we're going to get, but if, if you were to, you're probably going to have gold shares go down with the market. And let's face it, over the past few weeks, gold shares have been trading with the market. Now, I don't want to put too much into one day's action, but I did find it positive that when the market was near its lows on Friday, Dow was down almost to 13,000, down over 150 points. The HUI index, which is uh, the Amex Gold Bugs Index, an index of uh, gold shares, was actually up six or seven points uh, when, when the market was kind of at its lows. So I would kind of like to see this disconnect where the gold shares aren't trading with the market. And if you look at the XAU index, which is an index of larger cap gold stocks. Right now, the, the all-time high was in 1987 and 1996 at 150, 155. We got up to 157 on this past rally, and now are back into the mid-140s. And, and we've been there for the last few months. All that looks like on a technical basis is a huge you know, uh, correction off resistance. Or sorry, and, and if we take out that resistance, uh, this could play in... To the, the, the six-month rally uh, against the euro, we should have a huge breakout. Meaning the XAU should really rally to 180 to 200, which would be roughly 20 to 30 percent higher than it is today. I would agree with all of that as, as being a real possibility. And um, some people will know that a guy called Tom O'Brien talks about when when the market's behaving like this, a little bit like bang, 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 banging on the ceiling, and eventually it breaks through and, and you have a big move. And we've seen that before with gold, uh, going back a couple of years. 
And it certainly looks like we're ready for that again. And I mean, fundamentally, the explanation for that, and we were talking about liquidity before, I mean, the, the European banks, the European Central Bank dumped a lot of liquidity in the market, and the Fed has dumped some liquidity in too. And that money doesn't necessarily have to go back to what was popular, you know, in the last few months. It might go somewhere else. And, you know, a logical place for that to go when people have money is, is, is gold. And certainly the Chinese are sitting there, and, you know, I, I like to talk about the Chinese all the time in these things. The Chinese are sitting there with $1.2 or $1.3 trillion, and they're rather underinvested in gold, and they, they probably realize by now that they're overinvested in dollars and overinvested in dollar bonds and overinvested in mortgage bonds. I think it must be time for them to, to start seeing you know, more gold in their portfolio. And uh, they've been making some threatening noises, um, you know, to, to for political reasons in the, to the U.S. about uh, uh, about selling their dollar assets. And, you know, I think it would probably suit them f to see a little bit of a move in gold here and or maybe a big move in gold. But in the big corrections we had in May 2006 and February 2007, um, the gold stocks, particularly the juniors, got absolutely hammered. Yeah, well, that, that's my problem right now, is that basically since the market bottomed in the fall of the 2002 to spring 2003 period, you know, the gold and, and stocks and, and the stock market have been trading together. Now, I think there will be such a disconnect. Now, let's say we were to enter a larger bear market. I think that disconnect would start when the Fed really started cutting rates, because that would hurt the U.S. dollar, and I think gold would take off um, off that. That's why I'm still a little cautious on the gold stocks. Uh, as we're in this market turmoil, because I want to see, you know, like you kind of put your money where the mouth, mouth is kind of thing. I want to see the gold stocks starting uh, this disconnect. Now, just as a, a quick reference point, I was talking about this XAU breakout. Mm -hmm. the, the, the example I'd like to compare it to is look at oil. Oil had basically a 25-year resistance uh, at, at $40 a barrel. 1980 top, 1990 uh, Gulf War top in about 2002-2003 period. When oil finally broke 40, it basically ran right to 70. So I think if that XAU you know, can break uh, 150, and if that can say coincide with gold breaking 800, you know, 7800, which is the resistance going back to 1980, that's when you can see your next kind of explosive uh, move higher. But again, I want to see this disconnect. I want to see gold essentially stop just trading vis-a-vis -vis with the stock market. I have I to say, sorry, Mike, very, very quickly, when you look at the, at the, um, the gold chart from 1980, um, it kind of broke up to whatever it was, 850. That was like a, a one-day thing. The real kind of resistance, if you look at that chart, is at about oh. 720, 730 when we saw it last May. I, I, I made the joke at a conference, and I hope this isn't too racy for the show, that basically that 1980 top lasted about as long as uh, Hugh Hefner after 30 tablets of Viagra. <laughs> I would imagine that's that's about eighty years, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking about the, the current day. You have. I think you should talk about me after thirty Viagra. Hugh Hefner's a, a master in that field. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, that, I, I actually, I actually think you know, I, three or four trading days later, or within a month later, like for example, gold's uh, closed over the last couple of months, and it closed at like six eighty or six ninety or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that was the uh, one of the highest monthly closes on record because gold, it just corrected that fast. If you look at a monthly chart of gold, I think the high in 1980 wasn't even January 1980 when it hit uh, 850. It was like 
in in November 1980 at like 670. Because yeah. that's how far, quickly the turnaround was. I must say, I'd like to meet the man who sold the gold at 850, the man who picked that top, <laughs> because he's a genius. I want to meet the guy who, I want to meet the guy who bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, he's the same guy that's buying houses in London at the moment. <laughs> yes, he is. But, uh, you know, he's got banks that are happy to lend him money a lot more than the banks were lending him money against his gold. Um, but, I mean, I'm thinking a little bit about a rubber band, and you know, I'm playing with one right now as we're talking a little bit. And uh, I think, is the, the, you know, the lower part of the rubber band is being the S&P as it's dropping, and the upper part being the gold price. And the gold shares are, you know, somewhere in the middle, and when that rubber band gets stretched to so far that it breaks, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if the gold shares go up with the gold price or down with shares. Yeah, that, that, that will be interesting to see. And the thing about that is, if you look at what happened with the gold shares, from they crashed the market from 1932 to 19, or 1929 to 1932. But when the market had a five-year rally from 32 to 37, the gold shares, the uh, home stake uh, in particular, really outperformed the market and if you could have been able to hold on during those three years if you didn't get totally wiped out in the Great Depression, uh, you would have done phenomenally from the 1929 to 1937 period holding uh, a, a gold shares. And a quick note just to get back to the market, one thing I would like to see is the Dow actually go to about 12.5, 12, 12.6 12, because that would represent a 10% correction because right now we're actually on the second longest period ever in the stock market without a 10% uh, correction. So I would, I would kind of like to see that occur to kind of maybe wash a few people Do you off. This is the second longest, Dave. Do you know when the first longest was? It was 32 to 37. Interesting. Which is the rebound from the Great Depression. And, of course, we're rebounding from, you could say we were re this market was rebound from the, the, the tech bubble bursting. Michael, let me ask you a question, um, and it's to do with the subject of, of the, uh, the manipulation of the gold price. It's, it's, um, I, I think I asked you about it about a year ago, and you, you kind of said you, d you didn't believe in it, and I kind of gather from some of your comments that perhaps you do believe in it a bit more now. It's, it's, it's something I don't know your views on, Dave, but the lease rates of gold this week have uh, broken all records uh, and if you look at a chart of the leasing, I think you actually posted it, Mike, it's it spiked. Does that suggest a lot of manipulation coming? Well, I mean, let's talk about what the lease rates represent. I mean, and, and what was interesting about that chart is it wasn't one period. It was, you know, all period lease rates uh, right across the board. One month, three months, six months. They've all gone up, and, and they've gone up quite sharply in the last couple of weeks. Now, what happens is people are borrowing gold. And they're borrowing gold typically in order to short it. So that means somebody out there uh, who doesn't actually own the gold borrows it from somewhere or someone else and then goes out and sells it. So um, that means that, you know, the, the, the shorts are eventually going to be covered. So, there, you know, there's a lot of potential pent-up demand for buying gold represented by that activity. And that that's something that might help as those shorts get covered. It might help shoot the price up, you know, thirty, forty, fifty dollars in a week, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised somewhere along the way here if we see a fifteen or twenty dollar move uh, in gold in one day. So, you know, that, th those shorts are going to help that action. Do you yeah, have a comment uh, on that leasing, Dave? No, um, not really. The only, the only thing I would say with the re lease rates. 
spiking up is, and Mike might be a better, uh, he might know a lot more about this than me, is that um, uh, the thing about that is it makes central banks less inclined to you know, sell or lease it or, 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 or lease it out because certain interests uh, denominated uh, aspects with it. But the thing I, I, I don't like about the recent spiking up, and this is a pure technical visual thing, I always notice they always spike up and they usually coincide with the gold top, so or short term top. So I don't know if I like seeing those spikes. <laughs> is is I, I, I didn't um, understand Mike from what you said. Are you nervous about those lease rates or? Well, I want to look at the data. I mean, I'm not. I'm surprised that Dave says that because I mean, I think you know, it, it really depends a little bit on who borrows them. I mean, sometimes you know, the the commercials are in there borrowing. Because they want to get more short, and and the market's going to dump, and you know I'm going to be very interested. And I actually haven't. The figures are out, and I haven't seen them. Is the COT the, the com uh, commitment of trader report, the last ones, and then again the ones for this week when they come out, are going to be really interesting. And uh, you know I'm going to go and look at those when we finish this conversation and see what they what they tell me. I would recommend uh, you both take a look at uh, the chart of GBS, which is the uh, the English gold. ETF, uh, our equivalent of um, of uh, GLD, and there was a huge uh, spike upwards in the volume on I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. I mean, it would, it's gone from something like five hundred thousand to two million, and um, it's it's the most amount traded in 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 well over a year on a daily basis. And you know, this this to me, Dominic, it it's kind of speaks to a credit issue where um, somebody. Um, you know, that the lease rates and that move you just mentioned in the GBS makes me think that people are changing their position. They're moving it from one market to another market. And, uh, you know, I have to study this a little bit more to, to explain it better. But um, I think you know, there are a lot of issues now about credit which didn't exist before. And um, I think probably you'll find, if, if we could see the real uh, action behind all this, that you know, there's an investment bank or a hedge fund out there that's moved their position from the uh, from the um, banking market into into the GBS market or into the uh, ETF market. I think that's probably what's happened. And you know, if, we'll probably read about this this week when somebody figures out what, what's really gone on. What I find interesting, what Michael just said, was that again, I don't want to put too much into one day's action, but if you look at gold and the stock market, again, they've been trading together. It's almost like People thought that gold was a reflection of liquidity, and because you maybe have a credit crunch going on, uh, you know that liquidity is going to dry up. But it's almost like Friday, somebody woke up and said, "You know, get your act together. Gold is real money. It, it's it's a hedge." And if there is a credit crunch going on, you know, because uh, gold went from being uh, selling off just before the U.S. markets opened to being up at ten or eleven dollars. Uh, it was almost like someone woke up and said, this is actually where you're going to want to put money if we are in a, a bad credit situation. Mm -hmm. I have to say, when I, when I look at charts, I put up, um, uh, I was taught to do this by Michael, actually, to put up the 21-day, the 55-day, and the 252-day moving average. And um, when you look at the silver chart, um, when the moving averages converge and they all run along a line together it almost always um well it has ever since 1999 presaged a, a breakout and um the silver chart has 
traced out exactly the same pattern that it traced out in um, leading up to August 2005 when it broke out. And um, it the, the moving averages are lined up brilliantly. And um, if history is anything to go by, the silver chart looks ready to roll. Well, all just to get uh, just to, to quickly elaborate, all of the precious metals charts, silver, gold, HUI, XAU, they all have the same pattern. They, they, they peaked in May of last year. They had a quick correction into the summer. Then they've basically, since then, have been in a long trading range. Like the HUI, for example, has been in a range of 315 on the downside and 370 on the upside since roughly summer of last year. So we're, we're kind of consolidating, I think, getting ready for a breakout in all of those indices uh, right now. And hopefully you're right. And uh, I'm actually looking at the chart. And what I do is I actually I use a short-term moving average of 50 and 150. And yeah, you're right. It's very similar because the 50 and the 150 converged in uh, late 2005 and then, and then broke up together. And you're kind of seeing a similar kind of convergence going on right now at around 13, you know, 12 to $13 silver. Base metals. What's your view on base metals, Dave? It's, it's kind of funny because, you know, we've had the divergence. And stuff. I, I'm, I'm virtually bull. Now, right now, I'm most bullish on the precious metals. And it's nothing to do with being a gold bug. It's more that we've seen a big lag in gold and silver compared to a lot of other metals if you go back five, six years. And I think they're about to play catch up, especially if we have credit problems. Um, I, I'm virtually longer term bullish, you know, despite any short term correction we see on most metals. Because I believe we're in a period like the 70s that we're going to see financial assets, just as the equities, uh, continue to underperform. you got to remember, despite this huge rally from 2002 to 2007, the S&P basically just got back to its 2000 high, and the NASDAQ, you know, is still 50% roughly under its all-time high in 2000. And adjusting for inflation, that's even, that's even worse. And, and adjusted, adjusted for say, the dollar. <laughs> I'm going to say adjusted and say euros, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. Right. So um, uh, um, I think uh, uh, base metals will continue to run, basically built on uh, what I believe were in an industrial revolution boom. Uh, similar to what happened in the 19th century in North America, in Asia and the emerging world. And that's going to keep the demand going there. And I think we're going to get to the point, roughly, maybe not yet, but in a year or two years' time, where it's not going to just be China exporting to the United States, but, but those countries are starting to build their own middle class and will start to build their own consumer demand and maybe not be so dependent on just what happens in the U.S. Michael, do you have a view? Base metals, yeah, I, I think Dave's right. I think um, the place to be now is gold. There's room for a catch-up rally there. And, um, you know, some of these gyrations we're seeing might be bad for base metals short term. Uh, longer term, uh, the crack-up economies don't use that much copper, um, the, 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 for example, copper. The U.S. is going to have to rebuild its infrastructure. And so we might actually see uh, some reasonable demand for base metals um, in in a you know in a recessionary U.S. as it rebuilds uh, some of its uh, infrastructure. So I mean, medium point. term, I think it might be interesting uh, to look at base metals. But I'll definitely go with gold and silver here. That's a great point. That like I think that's another underlining demand for base metals. Of course, we saw this collapse of the bridge in in, in Minneapolis and what happened in Katrina. 
And, uh, the, you know, the, the scary thing is I'm from Canada, and U.S. has better infrastructure than Canada does. So I, I think you're going to have to see that we built up all these huge suburbs, and we obviously have in, the, in North America uh, a society that's based around the automobile, but the proper infrastructure has not been built up uh, to go hand-in-hand -hand with the demand created from basically the way those societies have been set up. And I think we could see that uh, also help uh, base metals down the line. Because you're gonna, that's gonna be something that's gonna be forced to be done. And of course, if you did get a bad recession, as Michael would know too, one thing that happened in the, the Great Depression is you get a lot of government make work projects. So what, if you get, if you do get a bad recession, what better time to build up your infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, gentlemen, what can I say? It's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you, and I feel considerably more calm than I did at the uh, outset of this conversation. Um, as we close, Dave, uh, do you want to give out your website? Yeah, addictedtoprofits.net. Uh, and actually, I just started a new site on top of that, um, which will be updated first thing Monday morning. Uh, it, it's stockchartoftheday.com. And what stockchartoftheday does, it basically is, is what the name is. I put a, a, you know, a technical chart up uh, on a daily basis. It's kind of a good primer of um, what my overall work is like. Excellent. And Michael? Yes, um, my website, and you'll find some charts on it for this conversation today, is www.globaledgeinvestors.com. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.